Hello, and welcome to Historically Speaking, uncommon history with an unconventional pair. I'm Rebecca Robbins. And I'm Kim Kimmel. I'm a singer and actress. And I'm a retired history teacher. He was my history teacher in college. And now we've been married for 21 years. (laughs) Sometimes quirky, sometimes obscure. But this is the kind of history you actually want to remember. Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of Historically Speaking Podcast. Today, as promised, we are going to talk about the New Deal. Yes. Did it work? Was it worth it? Why are we doing it again? Well, it's interesting. The New Deal has many defenders and many detractors. This will deal more with historiography than history per se, that is to say the history of historical writing. For the first 30, 40 years after the New Deal, the New Deal will last from 1933 to 1938, Basically, all the histories written about the New Deal, FDR's New Deal, were positive. For instance, William Luchtenberg wrote extensively on it. And Arthur Schlesinger Jr. is another example who was very pro-New Deal. And yet, beginning in the 1970s and certainly by the 1980s, an entire new school of historiography about the New Deal arose, which was very critical of it. People like Jim Powell and Paul Johnson. So, just a a little background Yeah, we need to talk about what the New Deal is and why it was even established. Just a little background. The 1920s were an age of great prosperity. Many Americans... The Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties. By the time you get to the Depression in the 1930s, the 1920s were looked upon very negatively. But many historians like Paul Johnson have pointed out that that's a bit unfair. The 1920s allowed a lot of Americans to buy homes, to buy cars. Many women came into the workforce, including major professions and so on. But from the perspective of the 1930s, it didn't look so good. But in all of this, here's the great irony. Herbert Hoover would be president from 1929 to 1933. He comes into office in March of 29, And you have the Roaring Twenties still roaring. You have prosperity. You have things going pretty well, at least seemingly. But in October, the market crashes. Now, did nobody see that coming? I think Calvin Coolidge saw it coming. Calvin Coolidge was president from 1923 to 1929 and a pretty shrewd individual. And he knew that there was such a thing as business cycles, that periodically you're going to have a year or two uh, when the stock market will be down, when there will be depression, etc. There was in 1920-21. Then things really picked up. Calvin Coolidge could have run for office again in 1928, but chose not to. So his Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, who had led a very successful life, he had been an engineer in China, in Australia, he had made millions of dollars, a graduate of Stanford. He had saved an untold number of people in Europe, especially Belgians, during World War I because of the food relief program. He uh, supervised when Woodrow Wilson was president. Uh, he just had success written all over him, and everyone thought he would make He's a great president. Candidate. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Even FDR, when he was assistant secretary of the Navy uh, in the Wilson administration, said that he thought Hoover would make a great president. So Herbert Hoover comes in, and the market crashes. Like months uh, Just months. Yeah, he comes in in March, and it crashes in October of 29. Was it a bubble? Oh, yeah, it was a bubble, all right. 
Up until 1928, stock prices were fairly in line with value. But from 1928 through 1928 into 1929, things started to get out of hand. You had a lot more people buying on margin, that is borrowing money to buy stock, and more extensively on margin. So they were a greater percentage of, uh, of what they, when they purchased stock was because was of the margin. And you also had these investment trusts that were being formed and were kind of flimsy, et cetera. So there were telling signs. I think Calvin Coolidge understood this. Do you think maybe that's one of the reasons he didn't run? I don't know. I'm not all, I'm not certain why Calvin Coolidge didn't run in 1928 completely. I know his, uh, he and his wife, Grace, uh, their son died when he was president, and they never really got over that. And maybe he thought that six years as president was enough. Five and a half, six years as president was enough. But... Hoover comes in and then the market crashes. And Hoover, and this is the great irony, I think, and one of the great ironies in American history, Hoover was blamed for doing nothing. All right, you had the Hoovervilles arising in one city outside of one city after another, these these uh, ramshackle tents and shacks. There's a and, whole featured right. scene about the Hoovervilles in the musical Annie. Right. And, uh, you know, a Hoover blanket was a newspaper, uh, et cetera. And so Hoover got blamed for doing nothing. Well, it's exactly the opposite. Hoover did too much. Hoover began the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. He tried to keep wages high. So how did it come to the perception of most Americans that he did nothing? Well, myth when and, in fact he was myth doing. and reality are two different things. It's interesting. Herbert Hoover's Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, who had been Treasury Secretary under Harding and under Coolidge and then under Hoover, when the market crashed, Hoover asked Andrew Mellon, "What should I do?" And Mellon gave him the best advice that Hoover ever got. Mellon said, do nothing. Just let all the rot wither away, etc., and things will come back in about a year. But Hoover didn't listen to Mellon. And so he forced individuals and companies and stuff to keep wages artificially high. He began one project after another. He ran down the stock market. He criticized it, which just drove stocks farther down. Just to give you an idea of how much, how far the stock market went down, it reached its peak in September of uh, 1929 at 381. On Black Tuesday, October 29th, by that time, it was down to 230 from 381. And by mid-November of 1929, it was under 200. Eventually, by July of 1932, it would be at 41. Wow. We're talking about an 88, 89% drop from its high and on it September 3rd, dropping. 1929. Now, why did this happen? The generally received wisdom at the time was because Hoover was doing nothing. But there's an alternative point out there, which is that he did too much. That if he had listened to Andrew Mellon, the market would have come back in about a year and we would have been out of the depression. One of the great ironies in all of this is that in the 1932 election, 
when Hoover was running for re-election and everybody knew he was dead meat. There was no way that Hoover was going to get well, re-elected. Wow, I'm surprised he even chose to run again. Yes, that. I mean, it was just, I mean, there were Republican senators like Hiram Johnson of California and Robert LaFollette of Wisconsin that backed the Democratic candidate. Uh, Hoover had no chance. It was only a question of who would run against him. Uh, Al Smith wanted another shot at it. There were a few others that did, but Franklin Roosevelt got the Democratic nomination in 1932. But what's so interesting here is that the Democratic Party criticized Herbert Hoover for doing too much in the 32 election, that he was spending too much. So the idea that existed out there that Hoover was doing nothing was not rooted in reality. He didn't listen to Mellon, and he continued the fiddle and tried to engage in social engineering. And the Democratic Party in 32 criticized Hoover for this. So then Roosevelt runs against Hoover in the 32 election. and So did Roosevelt run on the platform that he was going to do nothing? Roosevelt is a one of the cleverest politicians in American history. I mean, I think he, I refer to him as a political chess master. Whether you agree with his policies or not is a different matter. But as far as his political skill goes, I think it was superb. I think he's one of the great politicians in all of American history. And he did criticize Hoover for too much spending. He said that at one point he was going to cut the federal budget by 25%. That's huge. Yes. Then he gets into office. He beats Hoover by like something like 7 million votes, 22 million something to 15 million. Right. I mean, he just swamped Hoover. Hoover only won, I think, 59 electoral votes or something like that. It was a landslide in the Electoral College. And Roosevelt comes in and starts to spend far, far more than Hoover ever did. The irony. <laughs> this is the New Deal. In fact, when... Uh, now, Rose how long was he in office before he started introducing the New Deal? Or was that part of the campaign? He actually used the word New Deal in his acceptance speech. He flew to Chicago to accept the nomination in the summer of 32, no presidential candidate had ever gone to the convention and made a speech And once they were put forward as the candidate. So he, he was the first. He broke tradition, yeah. He did it in part because people knew he had been paralyzed from the waist down because of his polio, acquiring that in 1921. And he wanted to show people that he was vigorous. But he also did it because he loved breaking tradition. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to set a new style, which he certainly did. And what a contrast between Hoover and Roosevelt personality-wise. Hoover was this brilliant but very glum individual. Stimson, his secretary of state, said that having a conversation with Herbert Hoover was like taking a bath in ink. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what that means. But and okay. another, another uh, cabinet member of Hoover said that in four years, in all the cabinet meetings he attended, he never heard one joke told. And well, government is very serious business. Uh, Hoover just conveyed this kind of morose and dire and uh, sour But mood. look what he was dealing with. Right. Well, yes, he was. I mean, and he was blamed for it I mean, all. it's hard to make a joke when people are starving and have no place to live. And there were, I mean, there were, uh, I think, 13 million unemployed. You had the Hoovervilles outside of every city. I think St. Louis had the most. They had over 1,000. That's like a small town. Uh, I'd be pretty Bill. glum myself if that were yeah. if that were under my leadership. But the perception was Hoover was doing nothing. The reality was Hoover was doing a lot, but it wasn't working. 
All right. So FDR comes in. FDR with comes a brand in. Brand new yeah. idea. By the way, he actually mentioned the word New Deal in his acceptance speech in, when he, at, in Chicago, and um, he comes in and right away. I mean, two days after he's inaugurated, he declares a banking holiday. Over 5,000 banks by 1932 had gone bankrupt. It was a dire situation. What did he mean by a bank holiday? Bank holiday, he said that for four days the banks would be closed. And what was the purpose and of that? The purpose of that was that when the bank holiday was over, any bank that would be opened up would be secure because federal inspectors would make sure that it was solvent. So FDR said to the nation just days after he became president that your money will be safer in a bank than it is under a mattress. And they believed him. And FDR had this kind of, it was just, I mean, he just smiled a lot. And it was just, he had this wonderful voice and he just reassured people. So a lot of this was PR and he was tremendous at that. And coming after Hoover, the glum president, FDR, who was always smiling and telling people things were going to get better. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself and all of that. He gave people hope. And the New Deal program started right away. I mean, so getting back to the bank holidays, so did people invest their money after those four they days? They trusted there was a, there was a trust in, in FDR. By so is that on. when the FDIC happened? Well, there's two New Deals. The first one is 1933 to 34. Okay. The second one is 1935 to 38. The first New Deal is about relief and recovery, and so you have all these measures being passed, like the Emergency Banking Act and the Economy Act and the Civilian Conservation Corps, which puts young men to work in the forests and, and rural areas, etc. Were these going through Congress or were these executive these were going. These were going through, these were acts put through by Congress. Okay. Uh, you have the uh, Tennessee Valley Authority uh, Act, which will deal with a lot of flood work and damming and so on in the entire Tennessee Valley, covering some 40,000 square miles. You have Roosevelt taking us off the gold standard in April and then Congress acquiescing in that. So that gold went up to $35 an ounce. It drove down the dollar. This is exactly what FDR wanted. You have the Glass-Steagall Banking Act. This is known as the 100 days. From, from early March to mid-June, the first 100 days of uh, FDR's presidency, you have one act after another being passed like the National Industrial Recovery Act. So did the Democrats have all branches at this oh, point? Oh, yes. In the 32 election, they cleaned up. Oh, completely. Oh, yes. Okay. They, they had, so that's they, why he could get all this they, through so Well, there's one, there's one branch he didn't have, and that's the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court had mostly conservatives uh, who had been appointed by Republicans in the 1920s, like Charles Evans Hughes, the Chief Justice. And... Uh, they would knock down, they would declare unconstitutional some of the New Deal programs, which, oh. of course, irritated uh, Roosevelt. Sure. And so all of these acts are being passed, and you get this sense that everything is in motion. And Roosevelt, FDR, gave the impression to the American people that things are really working. We're really coming back. But were they? By 1938, unemployment was the same as in 1933. How is that possible? Well, this is why, beginning in the 1970s, an entire new generation of historians, after the Schlesingers, after the Luchtenbergs, people like Jim Powell and Gary Johnson, I mean, sorry, Paul Johnson, who said, no, no, the New Deal prolonged the Depression, that if, if 
uh, Herbert Hoover had listened to Andrew Mellon and done nothing, which almost certainly Calvin Coolidge would have done if he had been president and had run for another term instead of Hoover, that we would have gotten out by 1931. That all of these programs... But FDR came in and he took it like times 100. Yes. That's why it's so ironic that in 1932, the Democrats are accusing Hoover of too much spending. <laughs> to but, I mean, essentially, he was doing these programs. People were back to work. So how was that? Well, a lot of it was make work, like the Civil Works Administration. You know, they, it was, they were, there were critics of the New Deal, of course. And they said, this is just a lot of make work stuff, appearance stuff, uh, raking leaves, digging ditches. Yeah, but like if this. they were being paid. Yeah, I know. They were being paid, but being paid by the government. And a lot of individuals felt that this was too much of a government takeover. You had uh, the, the cornerstone, the cornerstone of the New Deal, FDR himself said this, was the 1935 Social Security Act, which, of course, is still with us. Sure, right. Social Security provided unemployment insurance, uh, money for the handicap, and also for old age. But here's a problem. <laughs> There's problems with Social Security. Uh, at the time, the life expectancy in the 1930s was 59. You couldn't begin collecting Social Security until 65. Oh, that's clever. Now, the life expectancy is around 78, and you can begin collecting early Social Security as early as 62, full Social Security, depending when you're born now, at 66 or 67. So you see the problem there. Here's another problem. In 1945, for every person receiving Social Security, about 40 people were working to provide that by 2000, it was only three people working to provide for one person receiving Social Security. At the present rate, it will be one and a half people working to provide one person Social Security by 2030. So wait, what does that mean well, in later? Well, I remember when Rick Perry was running for the presidency, uh, he referred to it as a giant Ponzi scheme of about a hundred year duration. So you can get all kinds of debates on Social Security. It's oh, a, absolutely. It's a wonderful thing. It's a great thing and so on. You can also get criticism. which and is a, fear that it's going to run out and we're going to throw grandma over the cliff. Right. Well, as Milton Friedman said, Social Security really takes from the poor and gives to the rich because the rich begin working later in life than the poor do and they live longer than the poor do. So it's really a transfer of money from the poor to the rich. That makes no sense. That's one of the criticisms of Social Security. Uh, I'm surprised they haven't closed that loophole for people who earn over a certain amount. Well, they're trying to, and they're fiddling with it and so on. But Social Security in microcosm reveals the wide difference of opinion on the New Deal in general. You have one group saying it was fantastic, it gave America hope, it got us out of the Depression. You have another group saying, no, 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 it prolonged the Depression. And what got us out was World War II. That's what put us back to work and FDR But was, then where was that money coming from? How were those workers being paid? Those workers were being paid. Businesses began, began to come back because of all the production they had to engage in for war material, including the car companies. All right. But then they would have been paid by the federal government because that's who's buying them. The finished products. Not really. I mean, they started, the businesses really came back and were able to employ individuals because so much was needed for the war. And so what really bailed out uh, FDR, according to those who are anti-New Deal, was World War II, that he was very fortunate. Because even 
FDR's Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau, in 1938, said something to the effect, no matter how much money we spend, it, unemployment doesn't seem to really be dented. It did it'd go down from around 24% to 15% by 1937, but then it rose back up. 1938 was a pretty bad year. So, Isn't this kind of what's happening with this COVID relief? How's that? I mean, we keep pumping more and more money. Here's money from the federal government oh, for yeah, every American. Yeah. Here's yeah, I'm very concerned money about to compensate for your lost right, wages right. through unemployment. When the government, when any government starts printing too much money, watch out. Money has to be backed up with all kinds of solid gold. factors, gold, and gold and things like that. When you just start printing money, it become it can become more and more worthless. You're going to get inflation. Well, and that's uh, what the fear is right now. Yes, I think it's a legitimate fear. I mean, we're so the having... only reason that it didn't happen the first time mm -hmm. with FDR is because of the war. Do you well, think that kept inflation down? Well, if you're pro New Deal, you think the New Deal really worked and it really put America back to work and so on. I think it gave the appearance of working, but I'm not at all convinced that it really did work. But a lot of those programs did a lot of good. In well, the yeah, community. like for instance, the 1935 Wagner Act which gave unions a lot of rights that employers had to respect. The Fair Labor Standards Act, which is usually considered the last act of the New Deal, 1938, which sent a minimum wage of 25 cents an hour and a 44-hour work week. So, 44 hour, not a 40. Yeah, I think it was 44 hours at that time. I see. Yeah. And, of course, there are those who maintain there should be no minimum wage, that the market should regulate itself. We just had that argument. And that minimum wage it's actually puts some businesses out of business because they can't afford it, so they close up. So there's a debate as to whether a minimum wage is a good idea or not a good idea. I mean, you have an alphabet soup of all kinds of programs being created from 1933 to Well, and cities, whole cities, towns being created. Yeah. Like well, Eleanor, West Virginia, named after yes, Eleanor Roosevelt. I've been to Eleanor, West Virginia. It's a very charming little place. <laughs> Me too. Yes. It's a wonderful little place. Well, I love West Virginia. But that city general. would have never existed if it right. weren't for the New Deal. Right. But should the government be building cities? Perhaps not. Should they be building towns? Should it be the private sector? I mean, there's no question that both Hoover and FDR engaged in social engineering and a lot of government spending. Hoover didn't get any credit for that. And maybe he shouldn't have. FDR did get credit for that, and maybe he shouldn't have. <laughs> so, and uh, this idea that Hoover did nothing and FDR did everything was really a myth that persisted for a long time. And I have a quote I want to read. This is from Rex Tugwell. He was a major advisor to uh, FDR part of what was known as FDR's brain trust. Uh, FDR surrounded himself with highly educated uh, Ivy League types with PhDs from Columbia and Harvard and so on. And they so were called... Super, his, super smart. Yeah, they were called his brain trust. Well, uh, FDR himself went to Harvard and got a law degree from Columbia. So no, no state universities here. Uh, I don't know that uh, he had anybody in his brain trust from Idaho State. Right. Not that there's anything the matter with Idaho. No, State. I mean, I, I think guess. it comes down to snobbery, actually. Right. But this is what Rex Tugwell said in 1974. And I think this is uh, something our listeners should really consider very seriously. He said, and I quote, We didn't admit it at the time, but practically the whole New Deal was extrapolated from programs that Hoover started. 
Wow. Yes. Now, I'm surprised Hoover didn't come out and say, hey, folks, that was my idea. Well, in a way he did. In another way, he, what he, he thought that FDR was, understand, FDR and the Democrats were criticizing him for doing too much. Then they get in and they do 10 times as much as he does. So Hoover, on the one hand, is thinking, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not getting enough credit for what I tried to do. But wait a minute, you guys are doing too much now. But nobody listened to Hoover. Hoover, FDR completely, yeah, he lost his FDR completely. completely ignored ignored Hoover. In fact, FDR did have a mean streak in him. There's no question about it. He went after Andrew Mellon using the IRS against him. And just to give you an idea of the petty side of FDR, when Hoover left office in March of 33, FDR refused to provide him Secret Service protection as when he went back to California. How is that legal? He was the president. He's the head of the Secret Service. Why would you do that? Because hefty. He was just an SOB. Well, there was an SOB aspect to FDR. There was a very charming aspect to FDR. Don't get on his bad side. I think FDR was a Machiavellian type. Uh, I think he was very clever, but not in an intellectual way. Many individuals remarked that they had never known FDR to read a book. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and FDR would always wing it. I mean, he, he himself would say, well, you know, if this program doesn't work, we'll try something else. And if that doesn't work, we'll try something else. But he just had this unflappable air about him that gave people confidence. And I, and think, I think a lot of this was perception versus reality. But I want our listeners to know that there's two entirely different views of the New Deal out there. Uh, there well, are, kind of just like today. There is people who think all these relief acts passed by Congress for COVID thing. is a great thing, and it's helped Americans to get through mm-hmm. this horrible pandemic. Right. But then there's others who are, you know, maintaining saying, that we're going to pay a price for this long term. A huge price inflation is going to go right. up. Mm-hmm. Well, and for instance, businesses now are having a hard time finding employees. Absolutely. Because they're making more money on unemployment. Absolutely. Well, FDR, he himself, FDR said, "Look, I don't want people just on the dole." The original part of the New Deal kind of did that. And uh, with the Reconstruction Finance Corporation that Hoover started, it was loans to banks and railroads and, and life insurance companies to keep them propped up. Like bailouts, like of the car company. Kind of, yeah, right. But with, with FDR, it went beyond that. It was actually grants to states to give out money as they saw fit, like with the Federal Emergency Relief Act and so on. I just feel like we're repeating this all over again. Well, we'll see how that works out. Yeah, because hopefully we don't need a war to bail us out. Yeah, hopefully we don't need a war, especially the size of World War II. If you are anti-New Deal, that's one of your main points, that that World War II bailed out our economy and bailed out FDR. If you're pro-New Deal, you don't use that argument. You maintain that the New Deal was working even before the war began, etc. But I would think there'd be a way to definitively tell that. By the numbers, I mean... Well, you can use statistics any way you want. Um, I guess it depends on who's writing the statistics. That's right. You know what Mark Twain said? There are lies, there are damn lies, and then there are statistics. There you go. So FDR comes out in most accounts as an heroic figure and Hoover Absolutely. comes out. Absolutely, and I think didn't Joe Biden just restore his portrait to a very prominent place? I in, think so, yeah. In his mm-hmm. office right. or somewhere in the White House? I remember when Ronald Reagan came into office, he put Calvin Coolidge's portrait in a very prominent place. He thought that Coolidge's minimal government approach was optimal. And I think if Calvin Coolidge had been president from 29 to 33 instead of Hoover, 
things would have been very, very different. I think Coolidge would have done exactly what Andrew Mellon advised Hoover to do. Nothing. Which reminds me of, of what I and a few of my friends call the Allenby Rule. General Allenby was head of British forces in the Middle East in World War I, and he comes into Damascus, and a lot of Damascus is on fire, and one of his aides says, General, you know, Damascus is on fire. What should we do? He said, nothing. It's usually the best thing. So when in doubt, four out of five times, doing nothing is arguably the but optimal that's so approach. that's hard. Doing nothing sometimes is more difficult than right. doing something. Right. That's kind of what was done in the 1920-21 depression or recession. Uh, nothing was done and things bounced back. And those who are anti... But, the, but they, they didn't have a stock market crash like in 29. It went down. It went down. But um, not a crash. Yeah. I mean, like... the, the 1929 crash is like famous for all time. And just to give you an idea of how long it took to come back, the high was reached on September 3rd, 1929. We didn't get back to that until 1954. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. I did not know that. Yes. It wasn't until 1954 that we reached the... And now look where we are. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, the uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's over 30,000. It's over 34,000. Wow. And, I remember uh, when it was at just the time, barely reaching 20. In 1929, it was pushing 400. <laughs> Got to start somewhere. <laughs> and for our listeners, the Dow Jones was created by two financial reporters, uh, Charles Dow and Edward Jones in 1896. They're the ones that came up with it. Yeah. Originally, originally, it only had 12 stocks in it. Then eventually it had 30, and that's where it remains to this day. 30 stocks? 30 stocks. And they change. So, you know, one drops out, another one comes in. One of the original 12 was General Electric. Oh, really? Yeah. And they're still part of it, aren't they? I think so. I don't think GE's out of the 30. I don't know. Yeah. But um, that's it. Did the New Deal work, or did it just give the appearance of working? Was I guess it, we'll never know. Was it more we? smoke and mirrors or was it really something truly effective? And that debate continues to this day. But I love that quote by Tugwell saying, yeah, basically our new deal was modeled on what Hoover did. But the perception was that Hoover did nothing. It's whoever writes your history. Once again, I hate to be cynical, but as Napoleon said, history is a pack of lies agreed upon. And I am sometimes tempted to uh, to go along with that. For instance, I think Calvin Coolidge was a much better president than he was given credit for, but others don't. Well, it depends on their perspective. Well, that's the whole philosophy between big government and right. minimal government. Yes, if you believe that government is best, which governs least, then you also accept the idea that government is worst, which governs most. Right. Yeah, so it depends on your perspective. How much government do you want? What is the ideal amount of government? It's very difficult to determine exactly how much government or how little government should exist. And reasonable minds can, can differ. And they still do. Absolutely. I mean, Ronald Reagan said government can get in the way or out of the way. Yeah, I just wonder what's after after we finally get past the last remnants of COVID pandemic, what is our economy going to look like? I'm not sure. Not sure. Oh, by the way, by the way, money. Reagan was an FDR Democrat. A lot of people might not know that. He. Uh, what he do you voted, mean by that? Well, he voted for FDR four times. He he was a Democrat. He he believed in the New Deal, and it was only as you move into the 1950s and Reagan began doing a lot of studying that he came to the conclusion that the problem was too much government and uh, 
he turned against the uh, the New Deal, as some historians did. Wow, I would have never known that. Yeah. But even Reagan couldn't cut a single government program, and that's why he... That's what's so amazing. Well, Reagan said the closest thing to eternal life on Earth is a government program. And if Ronald Reagan couldn't cut a government program, get rid of a government program, who can? Yeah, because, I mean, you're a bad guy if you cut something from right. someone who needs it. Right. But Social Security might indeed be a Ponzi scheme. But oh, how, yeah. how do we get out of it at this point? We can't. There's so uh, many people relying on it. Anytime a proposal is made to correct it or whatever, it's usually shot down as being unfeeling, as something that won't work. And so we just have the status quo. But I then feel. there's the whole fear-mongering that we're going to run out. Yes. Well, it might not be fear-mongering. It might be correct. And then there was <laughs> Al Gore with the lockbox. With the lockbox, with the lockbox yes. Uh, actually, I kind of liked Al Gore's lockbox idea. I know it was made fun of. It, but, it makes sense. But they, they keep putting IOUs in the Social Security system. Yeah, they kept taking it out right. for other programs. Right, if they programs. had really kept it there, it would be, I mean, you, so you couldn't spend it on anything else. I think that it would certainly be more solvent than it is. So he got that right. Yeah. Well, I was favorable to that idea that Gore put forward back in the 2000 election. Oh, the 2000 election. Oh, yes, the hanging chads and all that. Yeah. Not quite as controversial as the most recent election. Uh, no. There was no dispute about the 32 election. FDR creamed Hoover. I think at the, in the 1932 election, only seven Republican governors were left. Wow. Yeah. It just wiped them all out. I just, and then in 1934, in the off-presidential year, the Democrats actually gained in the House and Senate, which is very unusual because usually, you know, two years after a presidential election, the party in power in the White House loses seats. But FDR got even more Democrats on his side. Wow. I wonder yeah. if we're going to see that in the 2022 election. We'll see. I don't know. We'll I don't see. think so, but I'm not sure. Wow. Well, this has been fascinating. I've learned a lot of things that I didn't know, <laughs> which is the whole purpose of this podcast. Well, there you have it. So that explains the the New Deal. Yes. It's controversial as of now among historians and uh, listeners yeah. can choose, can choose whichever side they, they would. Can choose if they didn't work or if they didn't work. Right. Well, thank you for explaining that to all of us, Mr. <laughs> Kemmel. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so next time... I'm not sure what we're doing again. I thought we might be doing the Korean War. Oh, that's right. Because I remember I was driving down to West Virginia, listeners, this is where that idea came in, and I kept going across these bridges that were saying this is dedicated to the Korean War veterans. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought, I don't really understand what that war was about. Yeah, we can deal with that. And I, I yeah. would love to know more about that. Because yeah. there's so many veterans still living who, who fought in the Korean War. Mm -hmm. And I want to understand what, what that was. Mm-hmm. All right. I think that's what we'll be doing now. Okay. Well, everyone, we will see you in two weeks. And until then, stay well, stay healthy, and... Goodbye. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Bye. Well, friends, here we are at the end of the podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the show description to find some of the resources we used for this episode. Also, if you've enjoyed listening, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a virtual high five by leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. And if you'd like to connect with us directly, you can find us at historicallyspeakingpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at historicallyspeakingpodcast. That's it for today. And again, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. And remember, 
If you want to know what the future holds, study the past. <laughs>